Today, we were so impressed with the candid demeanor and the relentless spirit of Tianwei from World Insight with Tianwei. World Insight is CCTV's prime talk show and a platform for debate on world news. We'll talk about how Tianwei earned the name Lady in the Back and the role of political dialogue and debate in the United States and China. We also talked about how she worked on a development project with a matrilineal community in Yunnan, western China, and how her grandmother's cooking drew their community together. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Ta for Ta. This is Juliana, and this morning we have Tian Wei from CCTV English. She is the host of World Insight, and it's a pleasure to have you this morning. World Insight with Tian Wei. World Insight with Tian Wei. <laughs> yes, that's the uh, I was title. joking around with Sarah on the subway over that you had interviewed me, but now I'm very excited to have the opportunity to interview you. It was great last time to have uh, the Schwarzman Scholars on my program right before the U.S. presidential election to see uh, what the really rising generation of the world is thinking about the latest political event. It's, yeah. it's, quite, a, it's quite a feast, I would say. We were doing some research and noticed that you had this nickname when you first started out being the lady at the back. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could tell us more what that nickname meant and how that shaped the rest of your career. <laughs> yes, the lady at the back. I was a correspondent uh, from the year 2002 to 2004 in Washington, D.C., for China, and that was the time when the Bush administration, junior, I mean, just came to the White House and struggling, while at the same time trying to start two wars. One is the war in Iraq, and the other is the war in Afghanistan. So, of course, the world media focused their attention in the pressing room, of course. So, when I was as a correspondent working in Washington, there were only two of us in the bureau me and another colleague, we have to cover all the things related to the United States and international affairs, as well as things about the United States. Quite busy time, but it was quite a wonderful time to go through, you know, the State Department, the White House, the Pentagon, going through these briefings, and at the same time interact with people behind the scenes to understand the real essence of it. But at the time, I think it's still today, most of the well-known U.S. media outlets will be having stable seats at the very front of the briefing room. Well, they deserve it because that's what the U.S. State Department needs to report back to its own people. And then, usually in the middle of the uh, briefing room, there are journalists coming from then the allied media, for example, Japan, Germany. But for us, you know, at the time, China was not significant at all. Think about it. It was China about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So the economy was not as big as it is today. And its political influence is certainly not reaching its scale today. So journalists like us from Pakistan, from Afghanistan, you know, and from Africa, Latin America, usually are sitting at the back. We have to fight those seats in order to have a seat. That is why I had this nickname because I was small. I couldn't be able to with so many tasks on hand, only two-person bureau, be able to occupy a seat in the front. So anyway, I was always sitting at the back, but I was one of those who always raised the hand and always wanted to ask a question. And, and of course, in the United States, I think, uh, shall I say, the ground is flat because as long as you work hard, people will notice you and they will give you support to the extent that they can. So I'm very grateful to the spokespersons 
who gave me the opportunity to ask the question. But you know, they cannot remember my name. First of all, Asian name difficult to remember. Secondly, they don't need to necessarily remember my name. They don't necessarily really pay me too much attention to China at the time. So every time they call me, they always call me the lady at the back. I have to raise my <laughs> hand really, really high and they need to point their fingers at me and say, lady at the back, you ask the question. Then, then you get called It on. become a nickname, <laughs> even though later they remember my name. But this nickname has remained, so many of our journalist friends joke about it throughout the years still. Mm. Wow. Mm. How has your experience as a correspondent in the United States shaped your understanding of American politics and your understanding of the relationship between the United States and China, which is evolving as we speak? Uh, it's a big topic, but I think, first of all, to live in the United States for several years and also interact with the real people, whether they're policymakers or just you know, people on the street, um, give me a much comprehensive view about what the United States is and what the people there are thinking about. I got more insightful understanding about that country, uh, and particularly at the time when the war in Afghanistan and Iraq happened, it was one of those most vulnerable times of the country. Remember, it's just right after 9-1-1. People are confused as to why, quote-unquote, they hate us. Mm -hmm. Remember? Well, probably you were very young. <laughs> I just wonder, where were you? Uh, in the middle school? or uh... We were both in middle school. Yeah. In middle school. So it was quite a shock, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's great to see how a nation is debating, was debating about a war. And how people with different interests and backgrounds hold their opinions. It's certainly a very diversified country, diversified opinions. But it's also interesting to observe that once your country declared a war against another country, the whole nation rallied behind the president. And totally the uh, national politics has uh, changed. Mm. So uh, at the time when President Trump was making the decision to spike Syria as what he believed as the so-called chemical attacks on the Syrian people by the Assad regime. I was wondering whether we could really compare history. And of course, apparently right now, it is only one-time strike. I still remember very clearly during the right before the war, there was a lot of debate in the United Nations and Secretary of State Mr. Powell was raising that photo to the rest of the world and trying to demonstrate that there was weapons of mass destruction. But of course, eventually, the facts prove the other way around. For me, covered the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, covered the US national politics, and see how your country, the United States, years later reflect upon that part of the history I think as a journalist gave me a much better reason to ask further questions every time. Mm -hmm. Can we go back to the It's side? not just about US politics. Can we go it's back about uh, about others as well? Right, it's not just about US politics. Can we go back to this idea of debate? Because I think this is the core of the way that you like to get across news. Why is debate so important in terms of expressing ideas and communicating what's happening in the world rather than simply telling it to an audience back at home. Why does why why debate? It is extremely important. I think only debates make people with different opinions reflect back about what they have in mind. 
before they speak out, they have to reflect upon their own in order to convince the others. And it only with debates that people would go all their way in order to find evidence on all sides and eventually weigh these evidence in front of everyone. And in China, the debate culture actually started back uh, thousands of years ago, believe it or not. Hmm, uh, at I the time, that. for example, uh, the time of Confucius, the time, time of the Taoism, uh, there were a lot of uh, philosophical and also uh, social debates going on in the country, particularly during the Warring States period of time. You see the, uh, uh, the birth and the rise and the flourishing of uh, different thoughts and ideas during this Warring States period of time. Uh, but of course, over the years, as there is one dominating thought, for example, Confucius, uh, emperors and different dynasties, uh, there is a lack of, there has been a lack of debate. But I think as China has become ever more important internationally, and the Chinese people are getting ever more interested in the rest of the world, and should be ever more sophisticated about the rest of the world and themselves, I think debate is the way to go. Debates, particularly, particularly in public sphere, takes a lot of uh, uh, courage in any culture. Here in China, it's a different set probably compared to the United States. Uh, but I think, in what way? Uh, for example, uh, in the U.S., when you talk to people, you wouldn't bring up some of the very controversial issues, uh, for example, about abortion, uh, about some of the social issues, transgender issues. Uh, particularly now, when you have political change inside the U.S., uh, and you would, wouldn't talk too much about the gun problems in your country, at least uh, not when there is a serious debate, and in the Chinese media. People are extremely interested in what is going on. The curiosity is enormous. And people want to know what others did right and what others did wrong so that they can help themselves to streamline their own thoughts. Um, believe it or not, history can be learned by all of us, no matter whose history it is. Um, but history always being told in so many different ways. So even history needs to be debated. Um, and history needs to be reminded also. So I think the debate is not just about what we talk about today, but rather the debate should be about what happened before, what happened in other countries, what happened in other cultures, uh, what is going on with us, how can we learn from the others, how can we avoid some of the mistakes being made earlier and also made by the others. I think only that, the debate become meaningful. So given the tremendous changes that China has experienced over the last three decades, how do you feel that young Chinese people can um, have a sense of kind of historical continuity with the recent past? And what do you think are the main historical topics that China as, as a society is debating and that the West should understand better in order to understand China's growing role in the world? Mm. Well, that's a very profound question <laughs> you asked. I think there is a, a challenge for the Chinese younger generation to understand history because China changes so fast. Uh, I mean, just think about the time you are here in Beijing, right? Uh, you will see in your neighborhood there are changes going on, whether it's about construction or you know, new buildings or people's mindset or uh, China's role in the world. So I think it is quite challenging for the Chinese young people to know what really happened and also be interested in what really happened and trying to seek their own analysis about what happened and uh, to draw inspiration from it. 
Um, having said that, though, I think the rest of the world, uh, if I could generalize like that, probably need to know China uh, from the angle of the fact that it has been a civilization uh, going on for hundreds and thousands of years. But at the same time, over the past 200 years, it experienced its own, shall I say, pains uh, in a tremendous way with the wars going on and the invasions in China uh, by Western powers uh, and also uh, by our neighbors such as Japan. So a lot of pain has been there in recent modern history of Chinese history. People see China as a threat, many of them. Uh, they would say, well, your civilization is much longer than many of ours. And today, look at your economy. It's the second largest in the world. And look at what you want. You want to have a globalized world in which you could play an ever bigger role. And yes, we do, because we do it for the better of the Chinese people. I think that's what we have in mind, if I could generalize mm -hmm. once again. Uh, because we suffered too much over the past 200 years. And there has never been stability, much peace, not to mention better life for the Chinese people for a few hundred years. So Chinese really, people here in China really cherish peace and stability. And we don't want to so-called dominate the world, have an ambition of saying like, we are going to decide on everything. But rather we want to have a good mechanism in which people would have better say, equal say, and also more equal footing, a peaceful world in which we could also all develop our own economies and make people have a better life. I think there's also uh, the danger of believing China is only about mercantilism. Mm. Uh, that is also another danger for the rest of the world when it comes to understanding about China. I think, yes, indeed, there is a get-rich-fast uh, a phenomenon in China. There is that kind of mentality. But I think to uh, to understand the real essence of China, one could not only just be here in the CBD and in some of the most prosperous, prosperous areas of China, you know, on the East Coast and also uh, in the southern part of China, but rather really go to the China's inland. There are vast areas of China that are still underdeveloped. And it is still about getting rid of poverty. And so I think poverty issue has been troubling Chinese for a long time. So many of you are thinking about, wow, look at the luxurious hotels you guys have in Shanghai and Shenzhen, Beijing. But or even forget. some of these second or third tier cities so that you're brought to just due to China's sheer size. A uh, third-tier city in China is the equivalent of a capital in another country sometimes in just terms of population and growth. That's right. So I think mercantilism, will, it will be danger for others to think about China and equal it to mercantilism because there are a lot of things going on in the Chinese society. It is dangerous to simplify it. And just as you said, uh, there's another fear because of China's sheer size. People say you got vast market. You could function on your own. Uh, you could uh, not necessarily have to go uh, to do equal trading with us, but still function. Uh, but I think, you know, China, to be where it is today, uh, got the very start of uh, opening up and reform 30 years ago. And also another critical stage for China to be where it is today, that is right after China joined the World Trade Organization. Only with that, 
China benefited economically with global trade, but also we contributed as well because the rest of the world needs goods from China. Yeah. Now, even if you move jobs from China, uh, it will not be going back to the United States that will send most of the jobs because that will probably go to Vietnam, go to some of the southeastern Asian countries, going to Turkey and some of the other developing countries. So I think a very simplified mentality of you have the jobs, then we don't have it. It's a little bit naivety, I would say, mm -hmm. uh, and probably too simplified a political way of portraying things. I hope people could get more reasonable, rational, and in, in, in uh, making sure what they are telling their people and what they are uh, articulating are uh, representing the logics of today's world, which is a pretty much globalized world. So you talk about different parts of China and getting to know the people. I actually realized that back in 2015, you partnered with the United Nations Development Program to do philanthropic work that focused on the, it's a specific ethnic group, right? Mm. What was the name of it? Uh, actually, it's not just about the ethnic groups. We, the World Economic, the, the United Nations Development Program, or UNDP, it is more about uh, poverty alleviation. It's a gender equity issue. It's more about development. I always believe uh, development, as long as we develop, it gets us to newer places. It brings us new mentalities. With development, so many areas have to go all at the same time, including mm -hmm. gender equity. That's why we went to uh, Yunnan, going to some of the minority areas uh, to uh, see uh, how local uh, women are developing their own businesses, small, very small size businesses, but at the same time to bring a new income to the family because fundamentally uh, economic rights uh, are some of the foundations of gender equity between men and women, I think, particularly Definitely in, in, a, in a country like China. Uh, so I want to reflect back about the story that I have of my, my family. You know, I was... Uh, raised by my grandma from my mother's mm -hmm. side. Uh, when she passed away a few years ago, uh, she uh, was 100 years old. So wow. I'm very proud <laughs> of that part of the history. Wow. Century. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just <laughs> to think about the years that she experienced and the stories she witnessed through and the China she lived through. So many stages, I would say. Absolutely. Um, so I was raised up by her because my mother was doctor and she was always busy, whether in the emergency room or not. Um, so my grandma, she was illiterate. She couldn't read, couldn't write, but she could draw. <laughs> so you see her, I always uh, saw her draw on our little calendar on the table, you know, about some of the most important things to do. <laughs> little doodles. <laughs> yes, for the day. And um, um, she uh, is like the you know, almost the, the head of our courtyard. Because wow. We have a, a few couple of families living in a big courtyard. And she was the, she was the one, like a go-betweener, when there's a family crisis in any family. So she, <laughs> she was the there. mediator. Yes. Great yes. communication skills. Exactly, exactly. And the way she's communicated is not because she, you know, she is very polite, you know, or very, very articulative, but rather she's straightforward. She talked her mind. 
people appreciate that, that because um, when it comes to family life, it starts to cut the crap, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so the way she communicated, the way she said about things, the way she said about yeah. these beauties in the courtyard actually won a lot of hearts and minds. And she had a, she you know was originally coming from Manchuria, so she had a, she she knows the way of cooking the local food. Very hearty Manchurian food. What are some examples of local staples? Uh, you know, preserved uh, Chinese cabbage and uh, you know that kind of thing, uh, mm. pork and chicken. You know that kind of thing. The hearty style. Yeah, yeah exactly. So at the time when there's a, a crisis in the courtyard, she would bring food. <laughs> you know, in China, yeah. food is like the most important thing. With food, people sit down, people eat, people talk, people joke. It's certainly. The spinning thing in the middle of the table revitalize everybody. <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, that also was a quite a skill uh, from her uh, to you know interact with people. Mm -hmm. And what she taught me, the most important thing is that even though she is she was illiterate, but she was independent from the very beginning. You know, she had bound feet. She was married into a family in which she did not know about her husband, my grandpa. Mm -hmm. um, and my grandpa passed away very early, uh, very young. So she had to be responsible for the whole household. I mean, she, without education, without a job, how would she support a family? So I learned a lot through her own struggling stories, but she's always very optimistic. If you think about her straightforward talking style, you know, bringing mm -hmm. food to people, always a very optimistic person. And she would tell me that, you know, at the time when she was very much, ups, uh, in, uh, shall I say, uh, pressed by you know the very old the family style of letting the women uh, responsible for all the mistakes in the family, you know, when she was married into that family, she rebelled against it to the extent she can with all kinds of uh, different kinds of strategies. <laughs> so I think that's a like very, what you know she would talk, of course, to her husband my grandpa, and she would also sit down with my great-grandmother, which was quite something at the time because she was supposed to be, you know, doing uh, filial piety, which is to obey whatever she said, uh, that the great-grandma said. But she managed to sit down with her and even talk to her about what she thought, using different ways. So eventually some of the ideas got across to my great-grandma, and they were on better terms later. So I think all of these are really wisdom of life that I learned from her. But I think the most important thing she said is that a woman has to be independent. Uh, whether you are a, uh, shall I say, a housewife or you have your own job. And she always believed also women, when she can, should have education. And that's why she's so determined to send my mother and my auntie both to universities. Uh, think about her age at the time, it was quite a decision, particularly she didn't have any other financial support from any other person. So how did she manage to get my mom and my auntie to university is still a mystery to me. Uh, but I think mm. eventually that changed the whole fate of women of my family. That's only when my mother could meet my father in Beijing wow. when she was a doctor, right? Only with that education. And then... And a smaller percentage I, of Chinese were going to university at the time. At the time. As very compared small, to today. Very small. And not to mention women. 
an alteration, uh, a family that without much kind of support. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, people always ask me, uh, who is your idol? I mean, why would people go around the world to look for their idols? We have idols back at home. My idol, absolutely, 100% is my grandmother. Yeah, so... Um, uh, I can see how that could translate. Ago, yeah. The bold moves and the independence. So, so central to communities. I think, I think she's also sweet in her own way. Huh. You know what I'm talking about? She's funny, and she's um, really... Uh, determined to get a good feast every time when the spring festival came to the whole family. So she would let me write down all the dishes names because she wouldn't be able to. And <laughs> so that she wouldn't forget these dishes, right? And she would prepare them one by one. And she would get her preparation, you know, weeks ahead to get all the ingredients right. Every spring festival, I still miss that mm. uh, family feast prepared by my grandma oh, so every time when I talk about it I st I'll still become more emotional but mm -hmm. it was uh, I think that is the thing that we learn through life absolutely the shining uh, sides of an individual just in our households or just in our courtyard or just in our office um, I believe many women are heroes in their own lives and it really takes the mentality change of a society, society and the world probably to understand the shining side of many women, mm. Mm. including the two wonderful young ladies. Oh, right in me. Yes, indeed. <laughs> because last time when I was talking to you guys for the preparation of my program on World Insiders Tom Ray for that debate, I learned a lot. There was a lot of vitality in the room, and there was a lot of different flying of opinions. Uh, during the debate, and I could also notice the considerate personalities many of you have, and also the eagerness and urgency that you feel about to understand a very different culture such as China. Mm -hmm. So that gave me a lot of momentum when I come back to do my program. Uh, I think we draw inspirations and positive energies from one another. Absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And looking at your grandmother's life, do you feel that, on the whole, what would she think about gender dynamics in China today? And what do you think her experiences gave you in terms of a lens to look at society, to look at the fate of other women, like in Yunnan and the project that you were working mm -hmm. on? Do you mm -hmm. feel like her experiences and the stories that you carry within you have helped you look at feminism and, and gender equality in China differently? Well, I'm not sure whether my grandma really think about the gender equity in China. You know? <laughs> she wouldn't think it meaning these... Uh, uh, not very, consciously, very, yeah, but, but, I, but, but what she did... Her actions well, speak yeah, so loudly. Louder than words, in fact. So I think I learned a lot from her because of the fact that don't preach, just do it. Um... Because these days we have a lot of articulations about what the gender equity should be about. But I think we, we can all do it with our own actions, show our attitude uh, in our office, you know, in our societies. Um, I think doing our job well, uh, really, um, and being encouraging to the others, whether they're men or women, and also 
learn from each other, including from you. That's what I'm doing right now <laughs> by listening to your questions. Um, it's a charismatic way of implementing the general gender equity. Is uh, talking about the women uh, that I went to visit in Lusso. Uh, those are Lusso women. They so, are yeah uh, in uh, China's Yunnan province, uh, and they are a matriarchal society in which women would uh, be the household owner and uh, they would decide on most of the major issues of the family. Mm. Very different from, let's say, from the tradition of a feudal Chinese society. Uh, the Lusso women, um, they are very hardworking and brave because marriage just doesn't exist in their culture. So they learn from the very beginning that they have to rely on their own. Of course, they have a very open uh, culture because it's a matriarchal society. Uh, one of the things I have learned through that pro program is that uh, women have to look for new ways to make their family going forward. Um, economically, for example. These the Lusso women, they were um, in a very poor village. They live in a very poor village because there were geographical locations. But they also live in a place that's absolutely beautiful, breathtaking beauty. So a lot of tourists now are going to their localities. The question is whether these uh, women are going to the local karaoke bars to sing for the tourists, because they all have beautiful voices, <laughs> or they remain in their village to find new ways to make their ends meet. Why is it important for them to remain in their village? I'm not saying that they shouldn't travel. Of course, no, they but it's travel. a it's a but disconcerting I, tension almost. Yes. Of what now? Yeah, because uh, the women are the owners of the family. They have to make decisions for the for the family. If they leave, it's going to be a very difficult difficult for the family to function. And also, if they leave the village to go into the karaoke bars in nearby counties. And then there will be the issues about their elder generation, you know, their children, who will take care of them. And there's also a disconnect between the older generation of women there and the younger generation, because the younger generation can live and work in other places. But the older generations of women, they would find it difficult to hand down their skills and also their family plans to the next generation. So the question is, how can we bring these women back, but at the same time, make sure their family is going to be economically sound and make sure they still have the insights about the outside world. So that was the challenge. So how to, can we resolve it? Uh, there was that specific UNDP joint project to let women do their scarves. You know, they have their local skills of weaving scarves and these scarves could sold very well in the local markets, particularly in the tourist market. So why not to link them with some of the designers with some of the people who can provide them with better access to fabrics and also to threads uh, and help them to do the design so that what they made, the scarves, are going to be ever more popular in the market so that they don't have to leave their home continuously, but at the same time, they could still have better income for the whole household. And after all, they're great, you know, they make great handicrafts. So this is their skills. Why don't we revitalize their skills? 
to make their own ends meet and live a better life. So I think it's about all about connectivity. When there is connectivity, when there is support from the others, the women prosperous on their own. So women do not need to be nurtured. Women only need to be supported and to have an equal opportunity as the men. And I do think it is not, not about competition. It's really about partnership. In what way? It's about partnership of understanding one another, where we come from, and what challenges we're facing. It's about partnership of supporting each other. Think about women have been supporting men, uh, whether in households or in society. For hundreds of years, because of lack of gender equity, women are confined to their homes. But now, because more women are becoming more professional, more women could choose whether they want to stay at home or go to work. There can be more equal opportunities for both to support one another. And I think there are a lot of potentials in the other half of the sky, meaning, meaning men, that they can tap into about what they want to do uh, in their life. Maybe they want to care more about family, but we should give them the opportunity and not mock at them or laugh at them if they make that choice. So I think a society has to be really inclusive, uh, really embrace diversities so that every family could have their own remedy about what to do and what is best to fit them, uh, to fit their own needs. And of course, we do not necessarily have to embrace only marriages and families. We can also function on our own if we choose to do so. So I think diversity is really the word. Uh, I see China is moving toward that direction. It is um, very encouraging. But at the same time, there's also the talk of so-called leftover women. You know, that's a very um, degrading word, meaning women who have not been married, you know, at a certain age, maybe 30 years old or even older. That is certainly a prejudiced word again against the women. Why men are not being uh, named as the leftover men. So you could see there are some long-living um, concepts that people have about women, sometimes unconsciously. And probably we have to point that out and also tackle that. You know, only when we have realized deep from within that there has to be gender equity and it's going to be better for everyone, that can be done. I'm also trying to say that it is not just about political correctness because when you say well you have to say things right so that you know you are not going to make a mistake in front of the public it's not about that that is not important what is more important is really deep at heart politically correctness is important sometimes but what is more important is about what people's behavior and how people are treating one another so i hope you know in the united states you also have a gender equity issue you thought that for a long time. In this culture, of course, it's different. I was going to say, what do you think is unique about China in terms of tackling these issues? And mm -hmm. also just in terms of the partnership, I think you hit on the central theme mm -hmm. of what we're trying to get at on the podcast of mm -hmm. Ta for Ta. Ta with the Chinese male radical and Ta with the female radical, mm -hmm. vice versa. So men supporting women, women supporting men, thinking about this concept of equity you really hit on that central point. Yeah. And it's really promising to hear, especially in China. And I just am curious, what do you think is different about the movement in China? Mm. Think about uh, 
women holding half the sky, this very well-known mm-hmm. slogan that was said by Chairman Mao. Of course, at the time, it was a time when China needs to be urgently developed and we needed all the labors that's available over there. We need everybody to brace, to place, quote-unquote, a brick uh, in order to build a house, right? So uh, gender equity was extremely important for the survival of China and for a better uh, China. But later, of course, uh, when you have a reform and opening up, uh, there is many other thoughts. There are many more thoughts different kinds of ideas floating around people because people look at the outside world. Some are better, some are not necessarily so. So, and not to forget that we have uh, hundreds and even a few thousand years of feudal society in which gender equity has never been there. Um, So you would, at this time, when you have more freedom to choose, sometimes people get confused. And it is important that to reconfirm some of the most important concepts, including gender equity. And this time, it's not just about we need all the labors. We need to have everybody go into the revolution, you know, but rather to really realize a, a civilized, progressive society has to have gender equity. And also the fact that men and women are contributing in different and similar ways to our society. I think when you look at the Chinese entrepreneurship, a large percentage of uh, entrepreneurship started by women. But of course, there are some statistics suggesting uh, the uh, investments and loans uh, for entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs, uh, they got percentage much lower than that than men mm-hmm. uh, of the same uh, type. In that way, you could still see there are certain prejudices. Uh, against women. So I think culture cannot be changed overnight. As we say, if you just take out the butt of a plant, it would never grow faster. It could only die. So we have to be patient, but it's at the same time uh, consistent and persistent in making sure changes are happening. Did I answer my qu- your question? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think just to round off the interview, could you give us one word of advice about a big life lesson that you learned over your career or just any lesson you feel that young women should know that are kind of um, striving for this idea of partnership and, and equality? I think we appreciate your humbleness saying you've learned so much from us and from young people. I but I think in addition, we'd like to hear that from you. Mm. Well, it's hard to say one word Hmm. or two. Um, You know, I do a program called World Inside with Tian Wei, and I think vision is the most important thing, that people have to go out of their households, to go out of their little county, to see what is going on in other places, uh, to understand the sophistication of the world and to understand other women, to draw inspirations. I think that is probably the most important thing. Uh, beyond your comfort zone, I think. That is what we all need to do. And please remind me of that when you meet me next time. <laughs> and there will definitely be a next time. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it having the opportunity to talk with you about a whole host of things. It's great. I really had a lot of fun.
Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. And there's the end of the episode today. Please subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any feedback, suggestions, or just want to connect with us, you can reach us at our email, ta.4.ta.china at gmail.com. Until next time.